Uh, we're going to get back into 1 Peter. It's been a few weeks since we were there. And uh, what I'd like to do uh, this morning, in a way, is give you my Nintendo Wii overview of 1 Peter. For those of you who don't know what a Nintendo Wii is, this is the game that children play where you have a remote control and when you move the remote control the little characters on the screen do what you do. It's amazing technology. So you can play tennis and golf and uh, we've got one at home and the great thing about a Nintendo Wii is that you can design your own little character to look like you and then use that to play the games. I think I'm on here somewhere but maybe you can have a look afterwards. Um, but these little Nintendo Wii characters have become quite a thing. You can design them to look like yourself or some famous person and then play as that character in the game. What I want to do is use my... This is my little Nintendo Wii overview of 1 Peter, just as a recap. We've been four or five Sundays since we were last in 1 Peter and I want us to move on now into verse 8 but uh, of chapter 3, that is. But it would be good for us just to stop and recap on where we've been and uh, hopefully you can remember, we've had a few big sleeps since uh, we were last in 1 Peter. So hopefully you can remember. Uh, but we're going to do that first. So we'll recap first and then we'll get into the verse, verses that Ben read to us. One of the things that we need to realise about the Bible is that it is so utterly realistic about what it means to live as a Christian in this world. And... Um, I think we've seen already that this letter that Peter, a disciple of Jesus, writes 30 years after Jesus has died and rose again and gone back to heaven. This letter that Peter writes is full of tension because he's writing to Christian believers who are struggling and suffering. They're very tired. They're tired of being marginalised persecuted for their faith in Jesus they live in a very brutal first century culture and uh, there's a great tension in that for them and I think in part this is where the Nintendo Wii will come in hopefully, is that part of the tension is an identity crisis these people need to know who they are and if you're going to live as a Christian in this world, you need to know who you are if you're confused about who you are it's very hard to live a healthy life. And uh, I think one of the key verses that we looked at is in uh, chapter 2. If you've got your Bible open there. Um, in verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter describes these Christian people that he's writing to as aliens and strangers in the world. I think that's a key verse in the whole chapter. The whole tension of this letter the whole identity crisis that they're going through is that they actually, as Christian believers, don't belong to this world anymore. They're God's people. And so there's a tension there straight away that this world is not really their ultimate home. And I was thinking about this idea, and this, I don't know why, it's the way my mad mind works. It made me think of Nintendo Me characters. So this is my overview. Here's... Uh, here's all my Nintendo Me characters. I want you to imagine that this is the world, okay? There are 6 billion people who live in the world currently. There's not 6 billion Nintendo Me characters. But if you can imagine that this is a cross-section of our world that we live in. 
This is what Peter writes to these people. This is what happens. Did you see what happened? The first thing we need to learn is that God is calling people out of the world and to himself. Did you see that? There's the world. God is calling people out of the world. I don't mean by that that they disappear. We'll see a parallel truth as well in a minute. But I want you to see, Peter is writing to people here and the, the basis of their tension and struggle and identity crisis is that the living God has called them out of the world. That is great good news, but it has a lot of tension and struggle with it. There's a lot in this letter about God calling people. Just turn with me to chapter 1, just over the page, and you'll see in verse 15. Um, Peter, just in passing almost, says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2 and verse 9, over the page, <coughs> get these verses. Peter writes them and says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So it's there in chapter 1. It's there in chapter 2. It's there later on in chapter 2 as well. Uh, verse 21. Peter says to them, To this you were called. It's there in chapter 3. In the verses that Ben read to us. In verse 9. Peter says again, Because to this you were called. Peter seems to go off the boil on this subject in chapter 4, because it's not there in chapter 4, but in chapter 5, he sums it all up at the end of the letter, in verse 10 of chapter 5, when he says, The God of all grace, who what? Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So I would say that this idea of God calling people to himself out of the world, it's a theme that runs all the way through this letter. There's five chapters, it's there in four of them. And I think it's there in chapter 4, even though he doesn't say it. This is very personal, isn't it? God calls individual people to himself. There is a very real sense in which the living God calls people by name. He knows you. He cares for you. And he calls you to himself. I want you. Jesus said it, didn't he, when he came into the world? Come, follow me. Calling people to himself. I want you to notice, and this is why I've drawn it like this, that this whole idea transcends normal cultural boundaries. God is calling people to himself. We read it, didn't we, there in verse 9. A chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is a people now from every different culture, language, tribe, nation and people called out of the world to God. God is creating, if you like, a new nation of worshippers who belong to him. 
And that nation transcends normal geographical boundaries. I think you'll see that this also implies a kind of culture clash. I don't think you have to think about Christianity, the Bible or the world for very long before you realise that God and this world don't really get along. (laughs) And it isn't that God has moved. God is good. The fact is that the world has moved. We don't want God as our God. And yet God reaches into his world and he calls people to himself and by definition the people that he calls to himself will be different to the world. God is calling them out of the world. Rebels and turning them into worshippers. And these people of God now see things differently. Their values and their attitudes are different now. Peter said that in chapter 1, didn't he? Be holy because the God who called you is holy. So there's a culture clash straight away between this new nation of worshippers and the world that they've been called from. I want, you to, I want to just say this as well in passing. This is not like the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent. It isn't like God is Simon Cowell in the sky looking into the world for who are the most talented, best looking, great singers. And uh, when he sees someone who can't quite sing, he just goes, eh, eh, don't want you. This isn't a talent show. Peter says this in chapter 5, the God of all grace. The amazing thing is that God is calling broken, sinful, failing, unworthy people to himself to be part of his family. He isn't waiting for people to pull up their socks and then saying, I love them, I love them, I love them. The great good news of the Bible is that God calls sinners to himself. So this is not X factor. This is all down to God's undeserved kindness. A world that doesn't want him, God reaches into and calls individual people to himself. And ultimately, of course, it's all because of Jesus. God has sent Jesus into this world to wear human flesh, to to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we do deserve, to pay our debt, to bear the consequences of our sinfulness, to stand in our shoes. What an amazing message that is. That God comes in Jesus to make peace and call rebels to come home. So Peter's writing to these Christian believers to remind them of who they are. Why do I say it's an identity crisis then? Well, if this letter ended there, we we could say, well, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's great, isn't it? Oh Lord, thank you for calling me to yourself. And thank you for all these other brilliant people that you've called and you've changed. It's fantastic. Let's all go and live in the desert somewhere in a little commune and we'll all get along great and we'll enjoy you and we'll enjoy one another and we won't need to be part of this broken, horrible, despairing world. 
The truth is that God calls people out of the world but he sends his people back into the world. Well, not to live in a commune somewhere. And this, that's my Nintendo Wii overview of 1 Peter. That's where the tension comes from. These people are new people and they understand the privilege of that but they also have the great cost and sacrifice of going back into a world that doesn't want them any more than it wanted Jesus. And that is going to cost them. There's going to be sacrifice involved in that. And there's tension and an identity crisis in that. And Peter's writing to them, not to say they're there, go and hide away till the trouble passes over. He's trying to inspire them to be what they are, even though it costs. That's exactly where we began in verse 11 of chapter 2. Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to live such good lives among pagan people that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does that make sense? God calls people out of the world and he sends them back into the world. I think this agrees with the whole tenor of the Gospels and Jesus' words and teaching with his disciples, doesn't it? I've said this to you before. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus said to some fishermen, they said to him, where do you live? And Jesus said, come and see. And it says in John, they went and spent the day with him. And they were so intrigued and drawn and attracted to Jesus that they ended up following him for the rest of their lives. At the start of the Gospels, Jesus says, come and see. By the end of Matthew's Gospel, what's Jesus saying to them? On the Mount of Olives, after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus says to them, not come and see, but go and tell. That's the whole theme of the Gospel, isn't it? Jesus comes into the world and says, come to me. And then he sends them back out into the world to speak of him you can read in John's gospel the whole sort of um, chat that Jesus has with his disciples in the last supper and does it not is it, is it not throbbing with this sort of idea he says to them that the world will hate them like it hated him the whole theme of that letter is it's going to be a struggle for you, but take heart. I've overcome the world, and so will you, if you keep your eyes on me. It's the whole. So I think what Peter's saying here is an extension and an agreement and a, and a confirmation of everything that Jesus said uh, to, the, to them earlier. The reality for these people is that the world that they're sent back into will at times be hard on them. The world they are sent back into is very broken and unfair. Authority structures that, that are broken. And there's a real struggle and a tension in that. Why? Why? Do you ever wonder why? why? Why is it the case that when someone becomes a Christian, God doesn't just go zap and beam up to heaven? 
Well, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Wouldn't have to live in this miserable world then. Yeah, all the problems would be gone. Become a Christian, zap, straight to heaven. Star Trek, beam me up. Why? Why does God call people to himself and then send them back into the world? Well, I think in, in verse 9 of chapter 2 again, that's the key verse really. Peter gives part of the answer. You, you are sent back into a hostile world so that you may declare his praises. This broken world needs to know who God is. People need to know who they are. And how will they know unless someone goes and tells them? And that's the tension for the Christian church. When we've gone through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, I think Peter's just working this out, isn't he? That's all he's doing. I think Peter's working through all this in chapter 3. How are you to live as Christian people? And we went through, you remember chapter 2, chapter 3? The government's broken. But if you're going to live as a Christian, you be the best citizen you can be. It talks about employment. You're going to work for bosses who are going to whip you and abuse you and mistreat you who are corrupt but I, Peter says I want you to submit to them and be the best employee you can be don't wait for them to be the best employer you shine as the best employee what about wives who've got husbands who are totally unsympathetic to their new Christian faith and he says to them submit to them live in this world be the best citizen the best employee, the best spouse, the best church member, the best brother, the best wife, the best husband. Be the best for Jesus' sake. Because you've been sent back into the world to declare his praises. And that's where Peter's been. Don't, some, I think for some people, Christianity is a big excuse for poor behaviour. We don't do that because we're Christians. It's like being a Christian excuses you from doing the things that the Bible commands you to do. That isn't Peter's language here. Christianity is not an escapism. Your faith in Christ should shape your attitude so that you are the best person you can be, living a heavenly life in an ungodly world. Christianity isn't hiding away in an ivory tower and escaping from difficult relationships, hardships. God will always send you back into the world to face reality. Maybe I should entitle this sermon back to reality. It's, uh, that Christianity isn't kind of uh, an escapism, but it faces reality. Called by God out of the world and sent back into the world. And we're, we're just thinking about our church here, aren't we? That's got implications for our church. Our church should not be like a separate little enclave or ghetto where nice people hide away from a nasty world outside. God sends his people back into the world in the same way that Jesus left heaven and came into the world. A church that is isolated from the world is a complete misnomer. And the church itself should reflect that tension that's something for us to think about 
But I think the other implication is this, and how true this is, well, how untrue this is in many churches, that the way that we live together as Christian believers in a church family is a massive part of our declaring his praises to the world. When Christian people are falling out with one another, at each other's throats, they've completely missed the point of what God is doing in his world. When, Christian pe- when church just becomes a fight internally, it, that's a distraction from the whole mission that God has given us to go out into the world, isn't it? And often our failing interpersonal relationships actually cause us to lose sight of what we ought to be doing, which is rolling our sleeves up and going out to reach a lost world with the gospel. So I think this letter is powerful, isn't it? And hopefully that's a good Nintendo Wii recap. And hopefully you'll remember that. What's interesting is that what I've just said is exactly where Paul goes next. And it's where we're going to go now in the time we've got left. Because after dealing with governments and employers and marriage, he says in verse 8 of chapter 3, that must have been the longest introduction in the world, well, he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. You got that? It's important to do the recap though, isn't it? And now we can see how important it is, if we're going to live in this world and declare God's praises, that these verses are so relevant to us as a church family. Live in harmony with one another. So in the time we've got left, we're going to be fairly quick. Here's a little example of a little church. Here's God's people called out of the world, sent back into the world. What does Peter say they should live like? The world should see a radical, different community of people. And I I want to just linger in verse 8. There are five things here in verse 8. Live in harmony, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and be humble. We're going to just deal with those five today. And then the next one, verse 9, is about retaliation. And I think that's a big subject, so we're going to deal with that next week. And Psalm 34 and the verses... And then the week after that we're going to come to the most difficult passage in the whole New Testament about Jesus going to preach in hell. So you pray for me when we come to talk about that, chat, that part. But that's three weeks away. So today we're going to deal with these five things. Next week we're going to talk about this whole subject of retaliation. And then we'll get into the rest of the chapter. So you can study that at home. So here's my first, well it's Peter's first thing, live in harmony with one another. Just five things, let's skip through them one by one and then we're done. Are we doing for time? Yeah, we're okay. Live in harmony with one another. What does Peter mean by that? I think this phrase that Peter uses, he's writing here in Greek. And the Greek word that he uses for living in harmony, it it really means literally, be of the same mind. Be like-minded. Okay? Sometimes in our house, we, we talk about people that we know, 
and we've and I think this is more my wife who says this. She'll say, "Oh, that person, they're a, they're a kindred spirit." Did you ever hear that phrase? A kindred spirit. My boys are laughing because they've heard their mum say that hundreds of thousands of times. That person's a kindred spirit. What she really means is that person. I know where they're coming from. We're on the same page. They have the same feelings and thoughts and aspirations. They're a kindred spirit. There's a like-mindedness there. And it's a joy to be with people who are kindred spirits, isn't it? This is interesting because actually we're all different. And I don't have to really say that, do I? You know that. We're all different. Every single human being is unique. Even these Nintendo Mies are all unique. There's, there's one on there. He's not here today. There's one on there that looks just like Shane. But uh, we'll have to show him next week. We're, we're all different. Different shapes and sizes. Different attitudes. Different backgrounds. Different issues we struggle with. We're all different. And this is really interesting. I, I, I often wish that you were all like me. I don't really. But that would be so boring, wouldn't it? We're all different. If you, if you were involved in some kind of cult, the, the challenge would be to make you all the same. The issue there is conformity or uniformity. We all are the same. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about people who are different but who have the same mind. They're on the same team. They're on the same page. He's not talking about all wearing the same clothes, all having the same ideas or opinions. It is healthy even to have disagreements. But when it comes to the essential things, there's a, there's a like-mindedness that means that we can put our secondary differences to one side, even celebrate them and enjoy them for the sake of being like-minded when it comes to serving and following Jesus and living out the gospel. I think many churches try to co-opt people into being all the same. But that isn't what the Bible wants us to be. We're not clones of one another. What, we, what demonstrates the gospel to the world is when people who are so obviously different can work together and there's a unity in that diversity. Peter isn't saying that they should agree on every detail of every single issue but that on the major issues we're all of one mind. And there's kind of a mutual respect and a kind of mutual submission in that to kind of defer to one another for the sake of the big picture. Just there, uh, keep your finger in 1 Peter and just go back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Page 1179. This is Paul writing, different character to Peter. And this is what he says to some Christian believers in Philippi. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, this is chapter 2, verse 1, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This is a new way to live, isn't it? One in purpose, like-minded, submitting to one another for the sake of the gospel. Well, we could go to so many places in the New Testament that emphasise this idea. I think one of the best illustrations of this, I'm, I'm totally not musical, but um, I know some of you are. You imagine an orchestra and everyone's got a different instrument to play. But there's one conductor with his baton at the front. It would not be fun to go to the musical in the theatre and listen to 50 oboes all playing the same note boom, boom, boom. or 30 tubas or even worse, you know, 20 piccolos. Is that what they're called? What you need is all of that diversity to be playing the same with the same mind and the same purpose. And what happens? You hear harmony. And every instrument plays its part. And when they're all kind of blended together, it sounds fantastic. Isn't that a great picture of what a church should be? There's one conductor. His name is Jesus. And we're all different. We have different instruments to play. We're all different. But when we play under his leadership and guidance, there's a harmony and a blend that's what Peter means here. Live in harmony with one another. Be like-minded. It's like playing team sport, isn't it? I'm not musical, but I do like football. Uh, it's great to play in a team. I, I wish I'm getting too old now. The smell and the kind of camaraderie of playing the team and running out. The click of the football boots on the car park as you run up onto the pitch. And to feel that you're playing a team. If everyone in the team played left-back, the team would never win a game. Everyone in the team's got a different job. But when you play together, you're kicking the ball in the same direction, hopefully. And you're all going in the same direction. Different people, different personalities. And the exhilaration of going in the same direction is tremendous. Is that your experience of church? I think many people's experience of church is very much the opposite to that stifling narrow minded judgmental we don't want to be that kind of church I think it was Augustine very early in church history who, who coined this phrase probably in Latin but I'll read it in English he said this, in essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, love. Isn't that beautiful? In essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. But in all things, love. Sometimes we get uptight about things that really don't matter. And we fall out 
And some churches fall out over the colour of the carpet, the style of the curtains, the, you know. It, in essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. And in all things, love. Maybe as a bit of homework, you could uh, read the book of Acts. Just go through the first five or six chapters of Acts and look how many times the word together crops up. Different people, all the way through those early chapters, they were all together with one mind. And the church was growing. One in purpose, one in unity. They didn't agree about everything. They weren't all the same, but they were aiming in the same direction. Peter is really saying to us here, and he's saying to these people, I want you all to join hands and work together with one heart. So let me apply this to our hearts this morning. How, how is your attitude to your fellow Christians here in this church? Does your attitude foster unity, purpose, harmony and peace and cooperation? Or does your attitude tend to isolate you and bring about disharmony? Well, that's the first one. We've got four of this, so let's rattle on. The next thing that Peter says here in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another and be sympathetic. And uh, that's a lovely word, isn't it? Sympathy really means to enter into the feelings of someone else, doesn't it? It's the opposite of selfishness. Often we're only preoccupied with ourselves, me, myself and I. But Jesus transformed people to think also of others. Not out of a kind of self-interest, but out of genuine concern and love. And sympathy isn't just saying, I know how you feel, is it? Real sympathy takes time and effort. And it's a real choice, isn't it, to work at going out of ourselves to think about understanding those people around us. I think often uh, we can try to correct other people before we've done the hard work of trying to understand them. That's a big deal, isn't it? We're all keen to tell people what to do before we've even thought about what it's like to walk in their shoes that isn't sympathy, is it? Someone said this, nobody is interested in what you know until they know that you care. That's true, that, isn't it? Nobody wants to know what you know until they know that you care. I think often we think of sympathy as being just negative, sympathising with someone who's suffering, hardship in some way. But it's not just that, is it? The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sometimes it can be just as hard to enter into the feelings of someone who is full of joy. Often the problem is that we've got petty jealousies. You know, we, we, someone else has a really great piece of news and we think, mm, it's for them. 
That, that isn't sympathy, is it? I wish that was me. Honestly. So we, we think of sympathy as kind of sympathising with someone in their sufferings. Real, true Christian sympathy is about being able to sympathise with someone in their joys as well as in their sufferings. We often say that with our kids at home, you know. It's not fair. They've got that and I've not. It's like, be pleased for them. Why, why is it that so instinctively our hearts rise up and only think of ourselves? What, what is wrong with us? When someone else has a good piece of news, the first thing we think is, wish it was me. Instead of, wow, isn't that fantastic for them? We're selfish people, aren't we? Can you honestly say that you're glad when others succeed? Just one last point on this idea of being sympathetic as well then. I think we're not just talking here, you understand, about individual uh, attitudes, but this should be true of our church as a whole, shouldn't it? Just think about the subject of evangelism and how we reach out to people outside of our church. Some churches think those people outside riffraff it's really hard to evangelise them they're just heathens they'll never understand the gospel in a million years they're all doomed is that sympathy? does that sound like a sympathetic approach? is there any effort in that to understand where people in our current culture are the anxieties they feel the issues they face the disappointments they know. How on earth can we share the gospel with people if we don't sympathise with them? Half the time we're more keen to say, you're doomed. Who's going to listen to that? By God's grace, people do and will. But how much healthier and better it is for us to get alongside people and talk about the gospel in a way that shows that we care. Not that we're... The, the gospel does involve bad news. Because we're all guilty. But it's so often we just do the simple, easy work of saying, yeah, bad news, they're all doomed. Instead of investing time and effort and hard work in understanding and sympathising with people and almost earning the right to then share the gospel, which is good news. Do you know the Lord Jesus was known as a sympathetic man? We're going to come on to it when we think about compassion when he came into the world, he was a straight-talking, witty, winsome individual. The crowds were drawn to him. There was something about him. He had authority and conviction. But he didn't go on dropping bombs on people because he didn't like them. He understood them. Sympathetic. Think about how Jesus dealt with that woman by the well in Samaria. He didn't go up to him and say, do you know you're going to hell? He wanted to talk with her and understand her. And she ran back to the town giddier than she'd ever felt in her life. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the whole town almost is converted to faith in Jesus. Why? Because there was sympathy there. Not hardness, coldness. Sometimes I think Christians in their evangelism can be brutal rather than sympathetic. John MacArthur said this, we'll just finish with this quote on this heading. 
He said, to put it simply, we are to be ready to share in the suffering of others. Even outside the church, we should be known as sympathetic. And yet, isn't it tragic how very often the church pulls back and pulls back and pulls back and pulls back until it becomes a highly defined and ingrown subculture that sits in total condemnation of the world around it with very little, if any, sympathy. We must understand the fallenness of humanity. We must find in our hearts sympathy. We should be marked like our Saviour, who was a sympathetic high priest. We must share in the feelings of others, joining in their sorrow, joining in their joy. We should not be known as people who are indifferent to the world. We should not be known as the critic of the world. We should not be known as those who damn people. We should be known as people who are sensitive to the pain of the lost, sensitive to the anxiety of the lost, and sensitive and tender-hearted towards their great needs. Isn't that beautiful? What a challenge. Number three, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, and love as brothers. This is consistent with everything we've been saying, isn't it? Here's a family twist. I have a brother, and uh, there's a bond between us that's more than just being a passing acquaintance. When we were young, we had the odd fight. Now and again. But I can remember one time when I went out down the street and some lads were getting onto him. That I, I I jumped in and said, you know, I ended up getting my head kicked in as well. <laughs> but as a brother. And even though we were fighting, I wanted to defend him. It's a brother. Sometimes as Christians, yes, we do disagree. But there's a family spirit. That's the Greek word here, is one of familiarity and affection. Brotherly love. Respect and mutual trust. I've told you before, uh, you, some of you know that I run a business and um, my, my ex-business partner also became a minister of a church, Paul Howell, some of you know him. The five or six years that we worked together, I don't think I've ever had a close relationship with another man. Men, men don't generally cultivate close friendships, do they? They just like to have lots of superficial ones. But that was an interesting experience and we're still close now the number of times we've gone into an office and shut the door and metaphorically knocked seven bells out of each other we are so different as people but underneath all of those arguments and frank talking was a mutual respect and just the knowledge that the other person wasn't going to do something to get one over on you there was a trust there and a respect there that actually liberated us to be honest with one another. And I've, I don't think I've known as close a relationship with another man as that. That's what Peter's talking about here. Not sameness and agreement, but mutual respect. This is, what is, this is one of the marks of being a true Christian. It's impossible to like everyone you meet. Some people will irritate you more than other people do. When the Bible talks about us loving one another, it doesn't mean that we're all going to get home like a house on fire all the time. But it does mean that there'll be a familial, 
affection between us on the same team and, and just in passing what a great measure of growth this is it would be fantastic if our church grew numerically but wouldn't it be great if year on year our church was growing in brotherly family affection wouldn't it be great to say a year from now you know we probably wouldn't say it it would be a bit weird wouldn't it don't we love each other more than we did this time last year but I hope that you can feel that that the sense of affection that we have for one another is growing as we move forward. We don't want our church to be a cold, distant, starchy place. But we want to love each other as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate is the next one. Very quickly. Um, some translations of the Bible here say kind-hearted. And uh, I think that's a nice translation. Be kind-hearted. That's a slight being sympathetic, isn't it? But this word, I, I didn't know this, in the Greek, it, Greek people used to believe that their feelings originated deep down in their insides. And they would talk about their bowels, you know. They, 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 when they feel something, it would be deep down inside and kind of arise up from their bowels. We know medically that that's not the case now. But this word in the Greek literally means having good bowels. Think about that. This word means having good bowels. I hope you've all got good bowels. But this means having good bowels. It, it means to have a sense of generosity of spirit deep down within. One writer says it literally means to feel generous in your belly. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Do you feel generous in your belly towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? To be well disposed to one another in your deep inward thoughts. This is the opposite of the kind of attitude that uh, smiles outwardly while inside thinking. <laughs> you know that kind of attitude? We know how to smile and look sophisticated on the outside and inside and thinking, what an idiot. That's kind of a kind of a hypocrisy, isn't it? This is about being generous in your belly, heartfelt, deep and meaningful, concern, generosity, compassion. Do you know one of the things, as a, as a Christian leader, one of the things that pains me the most, can I, can I say, can I, can I talk honestly, is, is when I see people jumping to wrong conclusions about each other and immediately assuming the worst. Sometimes people come to me and they're talking about someone else. You're like, I can't believe they did that. And I just want to grab hold of them and shake them. If you ever do that, I want to grab hold and shake you. Shake them and think, have you, have you even for one second put yourself in this person's shoes? That isn't compassion or sympathy. That's just, I want to kill them. And don't come and load me with that kind of stuff. Take it to Jesus and let him take it all away from you. It depresses me and it should depress you. That, that is not the kind of church culture that Peter's talking about here. Compassionate, kind-hearted, generous in your belly, wanting the best for each other, assuming the best. What a joy it is when someone maybe does do something that's not appropriate and you hear someone say, I'm sure they didn't mean it. I'm sure there's a reason. That's, that's a spirit of love and kindness, isn't it? When we're quick to criticise and judge, 
It's dirty and filthy and horrible. Do you know, that is the way the world is. And when the church becomes like that, we might as well become a social club and play dominoes. The whole part of our mission is to demonstrate to the world how community should be. And when people see us bickering and judging, well, I've said too much already. I completely forgot about the slides here, haven't I? Just get carried away. One last um, point on that as well. Sometimes I hear people say to me, this person has wronged me so much, I just can't forgive. And I don't often say this, but I can say it publicly because I'm not talking to you as an individual. Do you know, sometimes inside I think, the problem is not that you can't. The issue actually is that you won't. You won't. You cling to the negative, bitter, critical emotion. And, it, and it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Peter says here, have good bowels. Be generous in your belly. Be kind-hearted and compassionate to one another. The Lord Jesus Christ was known as a compassionate man. And this is not possible really without the help of a loving God who actually is compassionate towards us even though we don't deserve it and who seeks to overcome and conquer our natural selfishness and calm our troubled hearts and make us gentle and sensitive and outward looking. This is the gospel. You can't do this on your own. Just let me say two things before we move on to the last one. Here, just one quote, and then I just want to show you another verse in the Bible. This is what an old writer said about this. Tender-heartedness. I'll have to paraphrase this slightly. Tender-heartedness is more than, than compassion. Tender-heartedness is more than just communication. Tender-heartedness is a gentle ministry that includes the service of a tender hand. It not only feels the pain of others, but it is able to touch their wounds with exquisite delicacy. Listen to this. Six men may have the sympathy, but only one of the six may be able to touch the wound so as to heal it. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Six men may have the sympathy, but only one of the six may be able to touch the wound so as to heal it. That's what we're called to as Christian people. The Lord Jesus Christ, just keep your finger again in 1 Peter and just go back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Um, and page 974. says in verse 35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness 
when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's a great verse to meditate on, isn't it? What do you see when you see the crowds? Do you... (laughs) I sometimes say to myself, do I even notice them sometimes? What do you see when you see the crowds? When you go into Rotherham or to Meadowhall, what do you see? When Jesus saw the crowds, his bowels were good. (laughs) He had compassion on them. He was generous in his belly. He didn't come to condemn them. He came to be sympathetic and to show them what they needed to know. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Victims who needed so much help and care. Okay, we're done. The last one, be humble. I think uh, you'll agree with me in this, that this one perhaps is the key to all the others. Do you think? Pride is the greatest ugliest, strongest enemy to everything I think I've been saying. When we live as if it's all about me, things will always begin to fall apart. Pride worries about what others think of us and leads us to pretend that we're something that we're not. Pride never wants to stand correction or be thought of as weak so stops us from being teachable and able to learn. Pride is always urging us to rely on our own intelligence and willpower rather than on God. Pride makes us jealous of other people who have what we want or smug when we've got what they want. The gospel should help us to recognise our own weakness and limitations. It should make us teachable. The Greek word for humble here means not rising far from the ground. What a lovely image that is. Do you know some of us are so far off the ground on top of our great big high horses that humility is impossible. Where there's pride there'll always be trouble. And it's the greatest most clinging weed of sin and selfishness. And when pride comes into a church and that root of bitterness and ugly divisive Disharmony, the gospel is the only thing that can uh, bring us low through Jesus. Here's another quote from John MacArthur. Where do we see these lovely qualities scintillating most brightly? But in the radiant beauty of the Lord Jesus himself as he walked this veil of tears. He was meek and lowly of heart loving the unlovely with a compassion that drew forth his pity and his power to relieve he was gentle with the fallen he was gentle with women he was gentle with children he cared about broken hearts and broken lives and broken homes like the river that flowed out of the garden of Eden his tears traced out his profound sympathy for all and even when they wouldn't have him He went on to the cross to remove the very cause of their griefs 
and make their deliverance possible. Jesus. So, here's the deal. There is a tension in living in this world for a Christian. God calls us all to the world and he sends us back into the world to live for him and to demonstrate his goodness. And my point today is that the way that we live together in a church family is very crucial because it says something to the world about the God that we believe in. And if we're disengaged and isolated from the world, we're not living as Jesus wants us to live. And if we're bickering and falling out with each other, we're not living as Jesus wants us to live. Did you notice that Peter doesn't give them a list of things to do? You notice that? What makes a great church? Peter doesn't say, this is what you need to do. All these different things in your programme. Do you know what the most crucial thing is? Not what you do, but how you are. He doesn't give them a blueprint to follow, but he gives them a series of attitudes to cultivate. I think these verses are a great description of the individual qualities that the Holy Spirit would cultivate in our lives. But will you join me in praying that these qualities would be our experience as a church family and that God himself would work these traits into our hearts corporately so that this church would have a, a spirit and a tone and an atmosphere about it that is radical that when the world sees it it's provocative and winsome and will draw them to find out more about the God that we love and serve. Amen.